I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after the holidays and talk about the beginning of 2022. Goodbye, 2021. We're also sitting down with one of our very favorite guests on the pod, Dr. Amber Schmidtke, uh, epidemiologist, as we talk to her about Omicron. And then later on in the pod, we have another returning guest, Rabbi Jack Moline, president of Interfaith Alliance. And we are going to talk about the one-year anniversary of the insurrection at the United States Capitol. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode. Autumn, it's a new year. What do you think? It is the new year, and I keep checking all of the news sources to make sure it's a quiet January 6th, because this date now kind of gives me a little bit of uh, anxiety. You get a little twitchy, don't you? Yeah. I do. I do. This day last year, I was, you know, we're recording this on January 6th, 2022. Mm -hmm. On this day last year, I was talking with a, a sweet church in New Jersey. I was setting them up with our Bible study curriculum, and... All of a sudden, my phone just started blowing up. My, I had beetle bops going all over my computer. I could hardly even complete the order because our nation's capital was under attack. Yeah, I just, you know, I was watching, you know, we're always, we're news junkies and uh, being in the media, I always have a television going on, even the even the sounds turned down, but just kind of making certain what's going on, keeping everything in check. And so we were watching the rally uh, outside the White House on the National Mall because we knew you know, they got some sense that they were going to just kind of continue this perpetuation of a big lie. Mitch, did did you know people who were flying to D.C. for this? Because I keep enough people in our red, very ruby red state on my newsfeed so I can see what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And I knew people were going to the Capitol. I knew of people who were going. Yeah, those folks have uh, defriended me a long time ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mine stick around for the kids. I think that's the only reason. You don't post enough pictures of your beautiful boys. Yeah, that, and your recipes. So, so your great that's recipes. That's right. So. And the recipes. So, so I just want to, because it just, yeah. it's one of those life events that you're like, no, I knew people who were there on the lawn. Yeah. So, I mean, we thought it was just going to be this typical uh, perpetuation of the big lie, you know, just the, the outlandish rhetoric that they've used in the past. The great past. steal or whatever they were calling it. And yeah. And then they started moving towards the Capitol. And around noon, they arrived at the Capitol. And I can remember watching television as they came to the perimeter that the Capitol Police had set, and they started pushing that barrier. And then they pushed it over, and they started, they they breached it, and they started heading towards the Capitol building. And I thought, okay, this is different. And you could see it in the eyes of the Capitol Police. I mean, Capitol Police are used to protest. They're used right. to having people, you know, you know, march and say rude things to them. They're used to this kind of stuff. But you could see it well, in their also, eyes. They're also like very, um, they're very territorial. You know, like right. I don't know if you've ever been there and accidentally touched the fence, but they're like, don't touch the fence. Don't touch you know, the fence. They're, they're very <laughs> prim and proper yeah. and, you know, keep things in line. Yeah. And you're right. You could see that sort you of can, like, oh, it's happening. Right. And so it just, and then it just unfolded and, and it went, uh, it got completely worse and, and out of hand. And and they end up breached the Capitol trying to overthrow uh, the election, the certification of the election. Um, you know, it, they they transformed from protesters into insurrectionists at that point. And yeah. it was it was a concerted attempt to overthrow the election. Yeah, it was, you know, this another spooky piece of this was the the certification of vote was being televised, right? So we are inside the the floor, basically, where they're making these these decisions and watching sort of you could see that um that information sweeping across the room as people started having to like literally move their bodies to safety in our nation's Capitol building. Yeah. Like it's just absurd. Right. And it was interesting because I was watching the, the Senate um, proceedings at that time. And yes. I can remember, uh, in fact, our Senator, Senator uh, Langford was speaking and somebody on the floor walked over to him and whispered in his ear and you could tell his face and demeanor changed immediately. Mm-hmm. And they suspended the proceeding immediately. They whisked Vice President Mike Pence out. Senator started leaving. Uh, you could tell that they were fearful. Even yeah. those that have, you know, enabled the former president were frightened about what was unfolding. 
And so it, it was a dark, dark day in our nation's history. I hope we never, ever repeat it. Uh, but unfortunately, it revealed a part of America that many of our fellow citizens knew existed, but many of us had never seen it you know, on display. And guess what? We saw white Christian nationalism on full display that mm-hmm. this is the goal of white Christian nationalists. They want to be authoritarian, totalitarian, and set up a government based upon their rule, not on governance, but their rule. And the rest of us can be their subjects. And it was just crazy. And so uh, I hope we never see it again. Um, it was just a, a dreadful day. You and I sat down with Rabbi Jack Moline uh, earlier in the week and talked about that fateful day. Uh, Jack lives outside of Washington, D.C., works inside uh, the Belt Loop there, in downtown D.C., and he was talking about what it meant to him uh, as we remember this this day this week. Uh, and so, again, hope it never happens again. Well, Autumn Omicron, it's not going away. Robots in disguise. Sorry, I thought <laughs> it, we talk about this with Dr. Schmitke that it sounds like a transformer. It does sound like a transformer. <laughs> It really does. Oh, so, you know, it doesn't seem to be dying down at all. Uh, You know, certainly hot spots uh, in the Northeast and the Midwest, major cities. Uh, Even here in Middle America, the Southern Plains, uh, cases are going up. Good news is that deaths don't seem to be rising drastically, even though there are some uh, rising, uh, but just small numbers thus far. But I'm just, I'm concerned because we still have little ones out there that are unvaccinated. And we've been saying this all along for the last two years. We just hope and pray that it does not mutate and end up attacking small children who are unvaccinated. And, you know, Dr. Schmitke kind of put that idea in our heads, you know, long ago that this thing, this virus needs a host and will continue to mutate in order to survive. And the unvaccinated right now continues to spread. It and, and and this strain, you know, has found its way into those who are vaccinated and boosted. And so far, you know, that has protected the, the them from the, the harm of Omicron. But my just my fear is that it's going to continue to mute or mutate as long as it stays out uh, stays out there. And so I just I, I, I don't know what else to do. Well, and you know, you mentioned that deaths aren't aren't really on the rise, but hospitalizations sure are. And folks who have been vaccine boosted are not the ones taking up the hospital beds and taxing our already overtaxed healthcare system. Um, You know, I just feel for those doctors and nurses and uh, support staff, cafeteria workers, folks who clean there. And, you know, we are hearing again about ICUs being filled and Folks are quick to correct and say it's not that there aren't any rooms. There just aren't any folks to tend to those rooms. Right. So there's no really no reason for you to be there. I cannot imagine what it's like to be a ICU doctor or nurse these days. No. I mean, it seems like I mean it's just one wave after another and they must be exhausted. And those who have stuck it out, I mean, even those that have you know, resigned and quit through this pandemic. I get it. I understand. Mm-hmm. And and those who have stayed, you continue to do God's work, in my opinion, and it is admirable, and we greatly appreciate it at Good Faith Media. We do. So wear your mask, wash your hands, get your booster. And um, listen to Dr. Schmidtke because Autumn and <laughs> yes. I sat down with her. She is a wealth of information, got some great insights to what Omicron is uh, and how to protect yourself. And so she's she's always a delight to, to visit with. So stay tuned. Autumn and I are going to talk to Dr. Schmidtke first, and then we're going to talk to Rabbi Jack Moline. So it's going to be a great uh, couple of interviews. So stay tuned. I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and find us online at Good Faith Media. Dot org.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a returning guest. In fact, she really needs no introduction. Dr. Amber Schmidtke is with us. Dr. Schmidtke is the Division Chair of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of St. Mary, and she used to work for, previously worked for the CDC as well as Mercer University. She is an incredible resource for us at Good Faith Media, and we welcome you back to the podcast, even though we're still talking about COVID-19. Welcome back, Dr. Schmidtke. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Well, none of us thought that we would be here going in. I mean, it, this thing was launched. I mean, when I say launched, that sounded like a, that sounded like a like CD it was drop. Prescribed. Yeah, right. Uh, this came into being in 2019. It really hit the states in 2020 and full bore March 2020. Here we are, two years later, Dr. Schmidtke. Would you imagine? that we would still be talking about waves like we have are experiencing now with Omicron. Yeah, it's disheartening to be in this place. I know I felt that way as I was doing sort of a year in review, look at data and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're still here. Um, but you know, knowing what we did about how this spread um, and things like that coming out of China, I think most of us knew right away uh, that worked in public health that this was not gonna be a single wave and we're done. Um, I think a lot of us were prepared for a longer course. I think that there have been things that um, have happened that have prolonged the pandemic a little bit um, in terms of policy decisions and other and just general, you know, American sentiment about what we should and shouldn't do in order to prevent spread. Um, and so, you know, the ship has really sailed in terms of containment. We are not in a place where we're yeah. going to be able to contain this and eradicate it. Um, the, the point now is you hear people say we need to learn to live with the virus. And I guess what I would say is we need to learn to cope with the virus. Mm. That doesn't mean mm. live with it like we did prior to um, 2020. It means taking reasonable precautions just like you would to get ready for flu and cold season. Um, this is going to be with us for a long time. Dr. Schmicki, one of the things I'd like to ask, and you know, as epidemiologists um, studying viruses like this through the history, uh, here on the pod, we've had uh, John Barry talk about the 1918 uh, flu epidemic. Is there any comparison between those two? How did the 1918 flu uh, pandemic begin to, to be solved? and to dissipate, are there any similarities? I mean, were they still, uh, was that generation still working to eradicate, uh, to, to fight against the virus two years after the fact? Because I just want to, you know, this may be just what it is, uh, and this is something we have to do if there's historical precedent that, that can educate us. Well, to be honest, we're still dealing with the after effects of the 1918 pandemic because ah. we have flu every year. Um, flu has not gone away in over 100 years, um, but we have learned to cope with a manageable amount of disease. Um, and that is really, I think, what we need to be aiming for. Mm. Um, you know, whereas flu has a seasonality to it and it's just in the summer or rather the winter months that we tend to see it um, and hospitals can prepare for that. Um, we can prepare, we can get a flu shot, we can be very careful about washing our hands and avoiding um, people who are sick. Um, the same is going to be true for COVID, I think. But what we've seen here is, whereas influenza has just one season, I think COVID is ultimately going to have two seasons every year. It's going mm -hmm. to be summer and winter. Um, at least that's how the last two years have played out. Um, I know earlier in the in, in the introduction, you were talking about how we all thought we were getting closer to being done, right, when the vaccines came about. And it really did look that way, um, especially spring of last year, when we saw cases drop really, really low, um, and there was a lot of momentum. People were getting vaccinated, but we eventually leveled off. And so we're in a place now um, where I don't want to say that we've made backward progress, but we certainly are not where we want to be. Well, that that is really good to to hear and to know because I do think that people understanding the historical precedent of this is that we've got to continue to fight this daily, and th these are daily battles. But there's also a long battle at stake. That and again, for the empty time, the best way to combat this, Doctor Schmidtke, is 
get vaccinated. Thank you. <laughs> and wear your stinking mask if you're in public, for heaven's sake, right? Now, I will I will tell you, so since we've talked, both of um, my boys, my oldest was already vaccinated. My boys were able to get vaccinated, and I did. Um, after their two weeks, like, we let them go to school for a week or so without their masks on because they're the only person in their class wearing a mask because we live in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're back in the 95s because I just sort of freaked out a little bit. What is your advice on masks? Yeah. So I want to touch base on something that we talked about. I, I know I didn't leave a lot of hope there when I said <laughs> that uh, uh, we're, we're like used to it now, Dr. Schmidtke. <laughs> we're going to no, have mask shaped faces. As, <laughs> as Ted Lasso has taught us, it's the hope that kills us. <laughs> it's the hope that kills you. Uh, no, I, don't think that we're going to be dealing with a hundred years of COVID like we're dealing with it now. I think eventually things will calm down the way that we have seen influenza calm down, but we are not there yet. Um, Right Right. now, we are very much still in the thick of it. Now, to your question, Autumn, uh, yeah, with the what's going on lately, and especially with my boys, we have gone back to everybody's wearing an N95 mask. Um, And like you, after they were fully vaccinated and two weeks post second dose, um, they were allowed to wear cloth masks at that point and they were still going to school that way um but with omicron um we made that pivot um pretty seamlessly the kids are on board they're not real excited about it but they understand the reason why um and so we're in that position now one of my boys is 12 and we vaccinated him the day of his birthday um back in may um and so we're in that position now where he's more than six months post second dose. And to be honest, he's the most vulnerable of the four of us right now in terms of catching that infection. Um, So I'm really, I know we're gonna talk about it, but I'm really excited to hear about um, CDC and FDA authorizing boosters for um, younger kids who were among the first to get vaccinated and we need to make sure they're protected too. So that'll And they reduced that right from six months to five months for that, Mm -hmm. that band of folks. That's right. And I think that's really important. The data is showing that immunity does seem to wane after the most recent dose. Um, it's got sort of a, a range of like four to six months. Um, so they're, I think they're trying to hit that sweet spot with the five month recommendation. Um, so, you know, I think it, yes, I think there's more we can do to make sure that vaccines are available to everyone in the world. We would be better served if everyone on this planet had at least one dose as compared to my son who's 12 with no underlying conditions getting three doses. But at the same time, if these doses are already here, I don't want them to go to waste. We are seeing a a fair amount of waste going on with vaccines. Um, And so if I'm not going to scoop them up and send them to another country myself, then the best thing I can do is get my kid vaccinated. Well, that's such a good word. Because I know there was there was a lot of like ethical questioning around like, do I get a booster? Do I not get a booster? But that was sort of the indication that we were getting too. Is these doses are sitting here? They're just going to go bad. Like if you can go get your third shot, go get it. Yeah, Yeah, good to hear from the from the source as well. Well, (laughs) that's right. Well, the reason there is so much talk about uh, boosters and the reason we've invited you to be a part of uh, Good Faith Weekly this specific week is because of the rise of Omicron, which sounds like a transformer to me. It absolutely does. It just does. Uh, But uh, I mean, here's what we're hearing today. Uh, The U.S. is now averaging 121,707 new COVID cases each day. I want to say last time I heard 80 something percent of those are Omicron. Uh, they're increasing at a much faster, faster clip in the Northeast, Midwest, and South. We're averaging over 1,200 deaths a day now, quickly approaching 900,000. With this latest surge of this variant, and we've talked about variants in the past, Dr. Schmidtke, and you've done a great job educating our audience on you know, how this thing was going to mutate. Here's what I want to know today is what what is Omicron? What makes it so contagious and why should we be so concerned about it? It is sort of a transformer though, right? Like a live transformer. <laughs> it really is, yeah. It is a bit. So the reason any of these variants exist is they have um, mutations that have conferred different shapes to their outsides or made them you know, better at invading our cells. They have different mutations that confer special abilities, right? special powers, like a transformer. And um, this one has a unique combination of things that allows it to spread much faster um, than even Delta did. Um, And so we are seeing this just take off everywhere that it lands. Um, And so 
I really think that Omicron is a game changer in a lot of ways. And you're seeing the way that that is changing things in terms of CDC policy about isolation and other things too. Um, sort of the recognition that this is going to be the big one. Um, not to say that there can't be big things after this, but this is something that is going to find every last person who is not vaccinated, which is very scary. I know for parents with kids under the age of five who aren't even eligible for vaccinations right now, um, but this is the big one. And so for that reason, we are expecting um, societal disruption. We are expecting to have so many people out sick at once um, that there is not enough staff to maintain critical functions. And so that's why you're seeing some of the advice from CDC change recently regarding isolation. They've cut it from 10 to five days. Um, I think it's especially true if you're an essential worker, um, that that could be something that we consider, but I would feel much better if there was a test that's done about day five to make sure that you're not still transmitting disease. Um, but again, the reason they're doing that is not necessarily because the science says we should, um, the reason they're doing that is to keep society functional. Um, so I, I hope that, you know, in a way, I think some people took that five-day reduction as a and and the the news that Omicron is mild, um, and they sort of conflated that to believe, oh, well, then this isn't a big deal. But what exactly. I think, I think what this really tells us is how stark the situation really is, which is we expect that hospitals will not have enough staff to manage the burden. We expect police departments will not have enough people to manage their workload. Um, we expect teachers and schools will be. Um, partially closed, if not fully closed, because of how many people are sick at the same time. Even if we have a mild disease, like this one is allegedly supposed to be, even a mild disease kicks people out. You know, they, they have yeah. to go home and stay home uh, to weather their symptoms. And so um, even a mild disease can cause a lot of disruption. You know, and what is interesting <laughs> about Omicron, Dr. Schmidtke, is that everyone that I know who has contracted COVID-19 the last week are vaccinated and boosted. So it goes to how potent this variant is. And so I can't imagine those who are unvaccinated, um, you know, how, what this is doing to, to their systems, because the majority of the people that I'm around, at least, are vaccinated and boosted. And so, and, and it's knocking them, uh, you know, off their feet. So, you know, I think when we talk about the mild symptoms, are we, are we talking about that based upon data being collected from the immunized. And I was wondering, what is it doing to the unimmunized in, in the country? Is, is, is there a distinct difference between the two? Is it reinfecting also? To tag on to that question, that was my next question. It is reinfecting. Um, okay. Even people who had Delta in the summer, it's infecting some of those folks too. So it's recent. Um, infection is still um, not providing quite as much protection as what we were hoping. Now, when the, the Omicron variant first originated and, and it was detected in South Africa, that's where some of our initial data came from. And it appeared to be very mild there in many ways because that community had widespread infection in earlier surges. So there was already some pre-existing immunity. Um, so there were milder symptoms. And so your vaccine works in much the same way as a previous infection. So the way I like to describe this is it's like you're going out into a rainstorm. Um, if you're unvaccinated, you're going out there dressed as you are. Um, if you're going out there with a vaccine or previous infection, then you're walking out with a raincoat. If you're walking out there um, and you've been boosted, then that's like having a raincoat and an umbrella. Now, when we are out there and it's pouring rain, you're going to get wet no matter what, right? But you're going to get less wet. And so that's really what's going on with these infections is that there is a chance you're going to contract the illness, but it will be much milder for you than it would be if you had not previously seen this virus before or its form in the, um, or it's, you know, the way we represent it in the vaccine. So it, it's still going to result in milder illness. And just as another encouragement to get the vaccine, get your booster, um, we still do not have adequate data just because we're still two years into this pandemic. We still do not have accurate data of what long-term COVID consequences may be. We're starting to, to get some of that, you know, six months down the road. And so those people out there that feel like that they're rolling the dice because all it is, is is a bad case of the flu, they need to understand, yeah, you may get over it in, you know, four or five days, but there could be long-term consequences you just cannot imagine. Yeah, we don't have 
great, um, robust data um, that tells us definitively what the spectrum of illness that can exist many months after infection or how common it is. I have seen some estimates that 30% of people who have mild infection go on to develop long COVID. Um, but anecdotally, I know a handful of friends who have developed long COVID and they got sick initially in March, 2020. And here they are still um, almost two years later having to see specialists because they can't walk up a flight of stairs or they can't maintain focus um, for more than 30 minutes and it's affecting their ability to work. Um, you know, and so I, I think it's important also to keep that in mind when we're talking about real young kids, mm. especially those who aren't quite verbal yet, because, you know, mm. we don't know yet what this means for their language and speech development. Um, we don't know what this is going to mean for, you know, just developmental progress and delays. Um, and so I think it's really, I bristle strongly when people are sort of like, I'm just going to get this thing because I just want this to be over. And I'm like, I don't think you quite understand yeah. the risk that you are running by just willingly feeding yourself to the chipper. Um, you know what I mean? And so sure. I think I would pause very strongly <laughs> right. when someone told me that. It sort of reminds me of like, I'm an 80s baby. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we used to have like chicken pox parties. Like when one of our siblings would get it, we would all kind of bunk in together and we're like, okay, we're just going to be itchy together. Is that sort of the mindset that you're hearing from folks who are like, let me just get it and get it over with? I don't know that it's as common as it was back then in the chicken pox uh, era. I will say I never went to a chicken pox party. It just sort of naturally happened that way. <laughs> Sounds like a really bad Chick-fil-A party that, uh, you know, went wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There Once were other, in your family other got it, were involved, right? <laughs> so you yeah. had to itch it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That, those were some fun days. Um, but, no, I, I, I want to say it's not real common, but that is one of the things I hear is mm – -hmm people saying, yeah. I just want this to be over with. Sure. But the problem is yeah. we don't have confirmation that once you've been infected, you're immune for life. That does not appear to be the case. Right. We're seeing reinfections. That's a great point. And just like um, we have to get a new flu shot every year, we may end up finding ourselves in a place where we need to get updated COVID vaccines, at least until um, this uh, caseload goes down to a level that's more manageable, like what we see with flu. Yeah. You brought up kids uh, just a moment ago, and this will be our last section that we talk about, but um, kids are returning to school after the winter break. Uh, some school districts have decided to go back to rem remote learning for a couple of weeks. Uh, some have instituted mandatory mass mandates. Um, what are your thoughts about sending your kids back to school during the Omicron variant surge? Um, so there, I will talk about this as an, you know, sort of somebody with an epidemiology background, and then I'll talk about it, what it means for me as a parent, because um, my kids are in school today. Um, but so on the one hand, I think it's brilliant um, to go to a virtual format um, for the first couple weeks. Um, it makes a lot of sense when it comes to, uh, you know, let's let some of this disease transmission that happened over the holidays run its course, do what it's going to do. Let's let things calm down before we bring a lot of people into the building together, many of whom are not yet vaccinated. Um, because a lot of those kids who are 5 to 11 only recently became eligible, and we just don't have that you know, vaccination rate like we would want it to be right now. And I know that I always get pushback on this, where people are like, um, well, that's their choice not to be vaccinated. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're 5 to 11 years old, it is not your choice whether mm. to be vaccinated or not. That is your parent's choice. Um, and I'm not here to hold those kids responsible for their parents' choices. Um, and so I think it's really important that we continue to do the work to protect the most vulnerable among us. Now, they don't have a frontal lobe, right? Their frontal lobe isn't <laughs> developed enough to understand why they need this vaccine. They don't want a bedtime either, but sorry. <laughs> right. They don't want to wear shoes. I'm the mama. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> or pants at my house. I'll just tell you. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, yeah, exactly. So on, on the professional side of things, I think it's really smart. I think it's really smart to require testing um, on a regular basis, um, just, just so that we're not bringing disease into the building so that everybody can be as safe as we can and still pull off school. Because I think it's incredibly advantageous to have that in-person learning. However, I will say as a parent, my kids are both in in-person learning today. It's the first day back. Um, they are both negative. That's That was one of our conditions was we weren't going to send them back unless we knew for sure today that they were negative. Um, they're both fully vaccinated. One is due to be boosted, and I think we will be doing that today after school. Um, and then I 
Um, they're both wearing KN95 masks. Um, so we really are doing the very best that we can. I will say that our school, we're very fortunate, has a universal mask policy. Um, it is not optional. Um, and vaccines are not required, but highly encouraged. Again, it's the best we can do living in the Midwest. So, sure. Yeah. So I think Autumn's got one last question for you regarding boosters. Uh, some news broke today, I think from the CDC or yesterday, that she's going to ask you. And then she's going to ask you the question we ask every guest that you've answered, I think, about you know 20 times <laughs> over the last two that's years. Right. That's exactly. our more detailed question. So Autumn, you take it away. Yes. Well, so first of all, I will just say we are still waiting on vaccines. I have a four-year-old daughter. She just turned four in October. Um, and so one of the reasons that her brothers are wearing KN95s is to protect her from where they're going to school and coming home. Um, you know, we got some early results back, I guess, from some of the the testing that there wasn't like a significant immune response from that age group to the like the current vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit about where that study is? Oh, goodness. I'm not as up to date on that as I would like to be. But what I suspect happened is with the pediatric dose um, studies, they were looking at a reduced dose um, because, you know, they're smaller people. They need sure. less of the antigen in order to hopefully in order to mount an immune response. And I think in, in, it's possible that they undershot um, mm. that dosage um, with this study. And so then the question is, well, do we increase the dosage or do we increase the series? Like instead of two doses, do they uh. need three? Um, so those are possibilities in terms of what they're doing right now. I, last I heard, we may be talking about um, real young kid vaccination um, as early as February, maybe March, which I know okay. is incredibly disappointing to be in this place where we're two years from the initial hit to the United States and we still don't have a vaccine for young, young kids. Yeah. But um, my heart well, goes out to you. That's got to be stressful. Right. I received a text because well, our oldest was in a the Moderna trial in Oklahoma City. And I got a text from that lab that said they were looking for six to 24 month olds Ooh. for the next round of testing with Moderna, which I don't have one of those. Thank goodness. Um, so we're just going to skip out on that. You don't have one yet. You get way behind me, Satan. Absolutely not. There's a pill for that. So what we also heard from... Um, CDC came out today and said kids 5 to 11 with moderate to severely weakened immune systems can get an additional booster, a Pfizer booster, 28 days after their second shot. Yeah, and this makes sense. We saw this come out in the fall, too, for older people with um, immunocompromising conditions, that they needed to get a booster even sooner than maybe perhaps a healthcare worker. Um, and a lot of that has to do with being in an immunocompromised state. Mm -hmm. um, typically, people who are in that position may not mount as robust of an immune response as somebody who is not immunocompromised. Sometimes it's due to medications that they're taking. Um, there can be a variety of reasons. And so, um, you know, this is an important situation to talk with your primary care provider, um, to talk about your unique situation and why it might be important for you to get boosted. Um, and when do you want to time that around the initiation of certain back, uh, medications, for example, mm -hmm. um, or those sorts of things? Um, so I think it's it's helpful to continue to get this additional guidance from CDC. Um, I, you know, if I were in that position, that would be my first thing is to call my PCM and um, or primary care manager and see what are we doing to make sure that we're good to go. So we're going to listen to our doctors and not the internet. That's my more to tell. Um, <laughs> first of all, okay. So as you know, you've been, you're basically like Tom Hanks with Saturday Night Live um, <laughs> with our Good Faith Weekly Podcast. Now you've, I think you're our most frequent returning guest. Um, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. And we, you know, fancy ourselves an outlet for print and digital and audio ways to give people a microphone. So we're handing you the microphone and asking you what your more to tell is. Um, you always stump me with this. I know it's coming, but I'm always sort of like, what are you say? Um, I will say I recently watched that movie, Don't Look Up. Um, and I don't oh. know if you guys have had a chance to I haven't seen it yet. yet. You're just talking it's about the Netflix. end of the world? It is about the end of the world, but oh my goodness, did it have so many striking similarities to our pandemic mm. response. Right. Um, and not in the sense that like, it did talk a little bit about how people are gullible and people and like the media confuses the story sometimes. Um, no knock in good faith media, of course. But um, but what I'm saying that was really striking to me was 
the people who are in the positions of authority and power are the ones making the decisions, but they're relatively insulated from the consequences mm. of those decisions. And we've seen that from the start of the pandemic, and we're continuing to see that now. And so I guess what I would say, like Autumn said, don't listen to me necessarily. I mean, I want you to listen to me. That's why I'm You here. at least have the skins on the wall to, to exactly. talk about this, right? You're not a right. veterinarian, you know. Right, but talk to your doctor, okay? Yeah. Don't get your advice from the internet. Don't get your advice from... Um, you know, TV hosts or, or podcasters, I'm not you guys, you guys are great. Um, but you know what I mean? Um, I think just right. be real careful about making decisions. Sure. I, we've seen a lot of people that are like, I don't want to get this vaccine because it's become so political. And I'm sort of like, are you willing to die for politics? Like that seems yeah. like, let's make sure we've got our priorities straight, right. you know? And so um, I think that, anyway, I'm rambling. No, no, but, I think uh, that that no, is that is such an important on. point because I mean, you know, we talk about this. You know, we try to advocate as best as our conscience uh, dictates, and we try to educate ourselves. You obviously are an expert in the field, but Joe and or John and Jane Doe out there listening to this podcast don't know us. They they listen to us, but they know their doctor. They know their local physician. And so have an honest conversation with them, and I trust the physicians are going to tell them what needs to be done. And I think that is, that's an important, an important uh, concept uh, for people to grasp. Ask your local physician, the people that you live with, uh, that you, you go to church with, you play Little League with, I mean, all of that, just the, those are the people you need to trust. Ask a local physician, and they'll tell you straight up what you need to do. So that's a good word. Yeah, I think that we, we tend to think that science is really inaccessible. Right. And I don't know how to get to this because I don't know any scientists. Every one of us does. If you have a doctor, if you have a nurse, they are scientists mm -hmm. and they're your local ambassador for science. So go talk. to them. Absolutely. And they know you and your medical history and what medicines you're taking and what your family dynamic looks like. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good word. Well, Dr. Amber Schmitke, thank you so much uh, for joining us yet again. Um, I have a feeling that you're going to be back on the pod uh, sometime soon because we, as we've already stated, uh, are not out of this. But there's going to be a day. There's there going is. to be a day when we are going to declare this thing the omega of uh, the situation, and it's going to be behind us. And then we're just going to talk to you about, you know, whatever. Well, the the art on the back of your wall because it's outstanding. It looks, uh, looks great. So, uh We'll, uh, we'll have you back on and just uh, celebrate the end of this thing uh, once it's all over. I cannot wait. <laughs> well, thanks again, and uh, we wanted to encourage you to stay tuned. We're, Autumn and I are going to sit down with Rabbi Jack Moline and talk about the one-year anniversary of the insurrection that happened at the United States Capitol in 2021. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we are now joined in Washington, D.C. with Jack Moline, Rabbi Jack Moline, who's the president of the Interfaith Alliance. Uh, Jack has been on the pod before. He's a good friend to Good Faith Media, actually serves on our strategic advisory board. And so, Jack, welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. Mitch, it's always good to be with you and Autumn. Well, Jack, we've invited you to be here today because we're recording this interview on January the 6th, 2022. Um, it was about this time last year that we were all so naive, thinking that, uh, you know, surely something like what happened later on in the day would never happen, but it did. So we just want, you know, you, you live in D.C., you, or you live around D.C., you work in D.C., just kind of tell us what your experience was that day as the events of the insurrection began to unfold. Well, news of what was going on at the Capitol began to reach us uh, over all the, the usual directions. Uh, you know, I was on my computer, of course, um, but the radio and the TV were, were all covering these activities. And as it became obvious that there was more going on than a, a peaceful, if dissatisfied, demonstration at, at the foot of the Capitol building, um, all of our attention got turned in that direction. I should say most of our attention. Uh, my wife, who by that time had had her fill of reporting about the presidency and the election, refused to watch anything. And I, I genuinely kept running upstairs to her office to say, you have to see what's going on at the Capitol. And she kept saying, no, I don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was horrifying. It was really horrifying. And especially since in addition to loving my country and, and, uh, and supporting the Constitution. I have friends who are on the floor of mm -hmm. Congress mm -hmm. 
with the vote count then, and I was very concerned for them. And especially, uh, though I, I will admit to not having been much of a friend of Mike Pence from before he was vice president, um, I was concerned about the chance of hang Mike Pence that I was hearing outside as mm -hmm. well. So it was it was a horrifying day. Um, if, if you'll let me tell you a brief story, the yeah, former sure. chair of our board is a guy named Fred Garcia. He's, he's quite an expert on, on presenting the, uh, uh, the steps that have to be taken in, in addressing crises. That's his communication skill. But when he was a kid, he was an immigrant from Brazil, and he managed to secure a position as a page in the House of Representatives. And when he was uh, page was when uh, Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency. Mm -hmm. And he says, he tells often that he remembers going out to the West Lawn of the, White, of the uh, Capitol and sitting and waiting for the tanks to move up to the Capitol to take over. Because in Brazil, when the government falls, the military steps in. And he sat there for a couple hours and realized that it wasn't going to happen. And it was then that he really fell in love with with America itself and the concept of America. So I talked to him during that day when this was happening. Mm -hmm. And I said, Fred, this has to be an awful deja vu for you. He said, this is exactly what I thought would never happen. And here it is. Wow. So that uh, his original story had a profound impact on me and his take on the day had that impact on me as well. So I was horrified. Um, we, uh, we, my wife and I decided on Sunday, which was just a few days later, to take a ride into the city to see what the preparations were for the inauguration and the aftermath of the demonstration. Mm -hmm. And we were just so saddened because the city was surrounded and, and created a, a maze of fences and barbed wire that made it look like a prison camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. you know, knowing my American history about what happened to the Japanese in America during World War II, and knowing my, my faith traditions history, my Jewish people's history, about what happened to the Jews during World War II, uh, this was just an awful image to see surrounding the nation's capital. Yeah, and I, I just don't think people grasp how dangerous and violent that day was because you know we watched it on television. You know we've been gaslighted after the fact, telling us you know it was just a, a protest. People were in the building, yes, but it wasn't that bad. You know, I was walking myself through the timetable uh, yesterday as I was writing column for today, and I I don't know about you, Jack, but I believe if they would have found Mike Pence, they may have hung him. I I, I try not to impute actions and intentions to people right. I haven't had direct contact with, but um, the evidence of what was done to the places that they did enter makes it look like that there was there was no self-control on the part of the people who were motivated by by fury uh, over over a big lie over something that was perpetrated by the man who was then president of the United States mm -hmm. and uh, I I think we are just very lucky that there was not more life lost and more physical injury than there was and of course those those deaths and those injuries are are both tragic and regrettable, but uh, things could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, and the real heroes were the members of the Capitol Police Force who who stood their ground. And that's yeah. None of us knew quite how dangerous it was until we started seeing some of that footage and hearing some of those testimonies and stories. Um, sorry, a testimony. There's the Baptist coming out. <laughs> <laughs> but hearing those stories after, and then I think what has been even more disturbing for me is hearing um, the twisting of the stories of what actually happened um, and the denial and just. I just don't know how you can watch what happened and then say, oh, it was just not a big deal. Or why are you still talking about this? A, a therapist I know likes to say that stories make the pain more tolerable. Mm. And, and I, I think what is happening here is that, that people who simply don't want to deal with the pain of what they perpetrated or they supported being perpetrated mm -hmm. are telling themselves a story so that they feel better about the pain that they have caused and the pain that they're feeling. And we're, 
we're not going to get past this until we're truthful about it. Yeah. Or racism. I mean, there's a lot of things that we're telling <laughs> stories about these days. Yeah, I mean, Fiction. We're, we're, we're talking about January 6th, but yeah. don't get me started right. on the rest of it. <laughs> right. right. That's exactly right. right. Exactly. What that day has done has been to deepen the divide between groups of people in the United States who now can't talk civilly to each other. I, I genuinely blame the former president for this. I think that that uh, a message of reconciliation could have put an end to this on January 7th, mm-hmm. uh, let alone prevented it on January 6th. But, right. On January 6th, just come out and say, go home. Right. Right. Yeah. But, but after seeing what happened, the the wise thing to do, the compassionate thing to do, the patriotic thing to do would have been to say, this is not the way we we have to put this behind us and and move yeah. on um and uh the, the divisions that have been uh, solidified by the continued advocacy of people who support uh Donald Trump and his uh spurious claims about the election and election fraud uh, they are responsible for hardening those lines between us and I'm trying very hard not to be part of that on the other side. And that's a great point. And so, Rabbi, where's the hope? I mean, we're one year uh, outside of this now. Um, the country does still seem to be very divided. Um, there's got to be some light that we can cling on to. So give us some hope. Okay. So I will say, first of all, that I consider hope to be a value and not an emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we are as as humanity, obligated to believe that the future can be better than the present. No matter how good the present is, no matter how bad the present is, uh, it is a value, particularly for people of faith, to believe that tomorrow can, can be better than today and will be better if, if we work at it and we have faith in that hope. So the hope is in our hearts. If you're going to ask me where the optimism is, I'm I'm not sure I can point to it. Uh, the people who are in uh, purple states are really, in purple districts, are really the place where optimism has to reside. Um, red and blue have, have hardened in this country, as I said, and I, I don't think they're going to budge. Um, as someone who lives in a blue community and, is a, and has a blue heart and soul, I think they shouldn't budge. But, uh, but I'm, I'm just worried that unless we get back to what constitutes a, a reasonable plurality, if not majority, of like-minded people who, who support this country, unless we get back there, uh, there is cause not so much for optimism, but uh, uh, certainly not despair, but certainly concern. Yeah. Mm. You know, just thinking about what this country has gone through, and you know, obviously the the one of the most difficult times in our country's history was the Civil War, and the most divided it was. You know, we got through that. I, I just want to believe we can get through this. It's going to take work on everybody's part, um, and I just, I, I that that's my hope. I, I believe in the goodness of human beings. I also believe that human beings can do horrible things. But at down deep, I want to believe in the decency of humanity and that at the end of the day, what we have seen time and time again in tragedy over tragedy or after tragedy in this country is that people will come together. And I hope, and I hope it doesn't take a tragedy. I hope that we can get there. Well, you would think a pandemic would be tragic enough to bring us together to do what's right for each other, but it hasn't. It's been even more everything. I just feel like I didn't mean to cut you off, but it just seems like all no, these I, things that should be like let's come together are having the opposite effect. Yeah, and and I'm I'm I, my thinking on that, Autumn, is that the pandemic unfortunately emerged within this time frame yeah. of a presidency and a political or environment that was not only divisive but it was set on fire, and so the pandemic the pandemic emerged within that context. And so there was no way for us to come together because of the environment it emerged in and, and, and developed in. And so my hope is the more, the further and further away we can get from that political uh, 
garbage fire, as I will call it, maybe people will come to their senses and understand that, yes, we have to, to, to be a better union, to make it this a more perfect union, then we, we have to, to come together and do things. And keep, yeah. keeping our eyes on the horizon is what's important. Yes. It, it is true that we got to the other side of the Civil War, but not till we went through the Civil War. And we will not get to the other side of the pandemic, of the of the political turmoil that, that was caused by the Trump years and the subsequent uh, attempted coup against the United States government until we get through that, until we deal with it. Um, Reconstruction wasn't such a bargain either. No, it was not. Uh, yeah. It was a necessary transition, but we're still cleaning up after that mess. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Um, especially if there are people who still want to make America the way it used to be again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Very true. Well, Jack Moline, president of Interfaith Alliance, it's always delightful. It's always enlightening when you're on the pod, and we appreciate you being with us. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you. Yes, Jack, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of the date on the calendar and the light that we hope is on the horizon. What is your more to tell? I love this question. Um, I particularly love it now because uh, here I am. It's it's January of 2022. Six months from now, I expect to be retired from this position and uh, and be able to uh, start working a little more intentionally on the rest of my own story. So mm. th the rest of the story for me is I'm very excited that there will be a new generation of leadership for Interfaith Alliance who will take the, the topics we've talked about today and the topics we haven't had time to talk about today to the next iteration that reflect that post-insurrection, post-Trump America that I think holds great promise for the future. The rest of my story is being able to sit in an easy chair and, uh, and offer my support from there. <laughs> Oh, well, we wish you the very best uh, as you finish out your uh, time with Interfaith Alliance, and we wish you the very best in retirement too, Jack. You have deserved it. You have been a uh, just a stalwart of, inf or of wisdom and guidance and knowledge, and we just thank you so much for everything you've done. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mitch, and I'm old, which is, <laughs> which is another reason I deserve it. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, well, again, uh, Rabbi Jack Moline, President of Interfaith Alliance. If you want to find out more about the Interfaith Alliance, go to interfaithalliance.org, and you can read all about the great work that they're doing in our nation's capital. Listeners, thank you so much for joining in this week. As always, uh, we appreciate each and every one of you. And until next week, keep living good faith.